Poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. What is happening, my friend? Hello, and welcome back to Chasing Poker Greatness. I'm your host, Brad Wilson, and today I'm going to be talking with cash game expert and YouTube vlogger, Matt Vaughn. At only 28 years old, Matt has been around poker for more than 10 years. He started off like many players at the Micro Stakes Online, and as he moved up stakes, he realized he could support himself playing poker and quit his ultra-exciting 9-to-5 job at a medical software company. Not long after that, he created his vlog on YouTube, and close to 15,000 subscribers later, the rest is history. Starting off with an offbeat video about a cat, his channel has grown into a wealth of poker information, mostly through his in-depth hand analysis. While Matt isn't 100% a professional poker player, In his own words, he plays poker about as much as anybody possibly can without it being their full-time career. He has had tons of success in both the live and online poker arenas in both cash and tournament formats. Like yours truly, he spends considerably more of his time in cash games, but has still managed to rack up more than $215,000 in winnings over the last few years. He also creates strategic content and does coaching, through the poker training site School of Cards and can be found on a semi-regular schedule streaming his play on Twitch. During our conversation, Matt will share some awesome insights on vlogging and YouTube that will prove extremely valuable if you have any interest in following that path. He also reveals his thoughts on the emotional and mental ups and downs that come with playing poker, the key points he uses to build poker strategy, And of course, the events that have had the greatest impact on his journey as he chases poker greatness. So without any further ado, I present to you Matt Vaughn on Chasing Poker Greatness. Matt, how are we doing, my man? Good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. You know, just paid a little more on my car repairs than I'd like, but otherwise, life is good. How much did we drop in car repairs? Let's get into the uh, uh, let's get into the the, the meat, <laughs> the, the um, nitty gritty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the meat of this podcast, right? Right, like, right. The high high on. value, high value conversation. Yeah, just just a hair over a G. They tell me I saved a hundred dollars though. So congratulations, that's some yeah, rake, break feels, feels like I won a hundred dollars, right? That's what it feels like right now. <laughs> yeah, congrats, man. Uh, so I made a mistake in one of my earlier podcast interviews with Matt Staples. I interviewed him. We talked the whole time. And then I realized only at the very end that dude is like four years old. Um, no, actually, <laughs> he's actually like 23 or 24. So let's start this out by asking you, how old are you? <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I'm 28. Turned 28 in September. I frequently forget my age. So like, I think it was just lucky that somebody recently asked me how old I was because I got to stumble over it with them. And then with you, I was just like, boom, 28, you know, you just nailed it, nailed it. Yeah, this is this is running good in life. This, these are the things that I spend my luck and run good on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let, 
you're you're not you're you're not a toddler, so okay. Yeah, I think that's we we've cleared that. How'd you get into playing cards in the first place? What does your story look like? Um, so I've been, you know, in and around poker on and off for a really long time. I, you know, took it up in high school or maybe even middle school just with friends and you know, super casually. I at the time like was probably easily the best of my friends just by like sheer discipline alone and like knowing to play tight. But there wasn't like a lot of, you know, spark of the intellectual side of the game or anything like that. Um, kind of moved away from it. And then I was sort of playing online on and off underage, you know, for literally free rolls running up like $0 to $100 and then back down to $0, probably like, you know, five or 10 times, something like that. Uh, and then in college, I, for whatever reason, sort of like picked it back up seriously, you know, bought three or four books. And then what was the reason? All of, uh, you know, I honestly don't even know how I like came back to it. Um, I, I know I'd already had like a couple of poker books that I'd gotten as like just random birthday presents here and there because I was interested in it at the time. And I must have just like seen one when I was getting ready to like pack up for college or, you know, what have you. And so freshman year, I, I pretty much like dove into online pretty seriously at the micro stakes and was consuming basically all the free content that I could possibly find graduated into like training sites and stuff like that. And was really at that point, I was much more in love with the actual game itself, not just like being up the guys who had no idea what they were doing. And yeah, I've basically been obsessed with the game ever since. Um, I, wasn't really I've never really been like a full-time professional player um, but I transitioned from like you know college I was taking it very seriously I had one job outside of college where I was still you know taking it as a very serious hobby and then uh, left that job to basically um, work part-time for a training site and also play more seriously so what training site uh, it's called school of cards and yeah, so I've been doing that now for pretty much three years. Um, my responsibilities with the training site have actually increased over that time. So that's much closer to being a full-time job now than it, uh, than it was when I started. But, um, you know, still obviously playing a lot and taking it pretty much as seriously as one can without being a, um, an actual full-time professional player. Do you, do you derive most of your income from cards in some capacity? Yeah. So, so as far as like my, how I live, you know, I would say a huge chunk of it comes from the actual playing of the game. Huge chunk comes from working for the training site and then a significantly, significantly smaller chunk (laughs) comes from uh, the content creation side of things. Um, But those are the three main things that I do for money. And that's sort of, you know, the content creation is like the top of the funnel, right? It's the thing that gets people interested in you. And then you, we then you move them down to other things. Nobody's getting rich off of YouTube, I think. Well, okay. Well, some very, people very are, but very, very <laughs> few people. There's that eight-year-old kid that unboxes toys that's like making, I don't know, seven billion a year or something. I think, um, it's, I think it's safe to say that nobody in poker's <laughs> from just YouTube. We can no. say that. Well, I mean, even even like a Doug Polk, right? He, he's got hundreds of thousands of people that follow him and consume his content and all of these things. But it, the revenue comes from upswing, um, driving people to upswing, the training side, and then selling the courses on top of that. So 
even though YouTube doesn't generate tons of income, it still provides opportunity. Whenever you can build an audience in any fashion, you there's opportunity there, right? Um, yeah, for sure. One of your videos, so I'm watching it, I'm doing my research, and like there's a two-minute montage. Like the whole intro is on your shoes, and you have a conversation <laughs> about your shoes. And, and all I'm thinking, without any context, is like what's the deal with this, number one? And like number two, how horrible were your old shoes <laughs> that this needs its own segment? So, so this isn't going to like – there's not going to be a video component to this, right, for the actual final product? I don't know. There there might be some bonus footage, depending on, right. you know, if, if you're so cool I might, with it. I might, I might try to find them for you later. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, first of all, I mean, step one is I think I was really, really bad at editing back then. So, I just had, like, way too many, like, two-minute montages of things that could have been, like, between five and ten seconds long. Um but I will also say that it was kind of like a meme on my channel for a really long time. Um, and people like people coming on in the last like five or six months probably wouldn't like be familiar with it because I've retired those shoes. But like it was a it was a thing, man. Like from the beginning of the channel, people were like, yeah, I love the videos. But Matt, you really need new shoes because I just had these like old ratty Adidas, you know, like I'm I'm the guy who will like run my shoes into the ground, literally. So it's like you know, they're, they were still functional. There was no holes in the soles. Like, they were fine, <laughs> right? But of course, like, they're, you know, they're ratty. They're not white anymore. It's just, it's a mess. And so, you know, I guess I had enough shots of me walking, <laughs> like, just either pointed at the ground or me walking by somewhere. So, yeah, people were uh, were really obsessed with those shoes. And so when I finally got a, a new pair, had to had to commemorate it with a two minute <laughs> montage. Apparently, it uh, required its own introduction. And uh, yeah, guys, we got the new shoes, so yeah. <laughs> we're cool now. Speaking of, of your video editing skills, you, you have around fifteen thousand YouTube subscribers right now. How did you go about building that audience? Being a self professed recreational player. Sure. I mean, from the beginning. I didn't really have like a grand plan for what the channel would be or even like how to grow an audience. Like it was definitely very much a trial and error kind of thing for me. I, in the beginning, I just sort of wanted to make something. And so I did. And then I saw some ways that I could make it better. And so I did. And then it was only like a little bit later that I started to dive a little bit deeper into um, like content creation, social media, actually like building an audience and kind of getting more interested in that side of things as far as uh, trying to maximize what you can do with YouTube, uh, given the time that I had to put into it. So, you know, stuff like optimizing thumbnails and titles and this other stuff like that was never, I never had any of that in the beginning. Like there's literally like, I think my third or fourth video ever is literally a photo of a cat on a poker table, but like you can't tell that it's a poker table at all. Yeah. And so there's like no context and like the title doesn't make sense with the thumbnail. <laughs> and like if I'm looking for poker videos, I'm just like literally never clicking on it. So, you know, huge shout out to anyone who who watched that video. I think it was called like One Cool Poker Cat or something like that. It was like really <laughs> dumb. So shout out to anybody who uh, made it to that video and stuck around. <laughs> what what are some of the things that you've done to get to the 15k to to grow on a regular basis like there's obviously this 
point of cat video that's obscure and doesn't make a lot of sense in a poker context and nobody can ever find. And then to creating content that's viewed by thousands of people pretty much instantly. Like I, I want to get into that process, that, that mm-hmm. creative and the growth because the fact of the matter is, and we spoke about this a little bit before in the pre-interview, is that poker players specifically, multiple streams of income are a good thing. They're just very necessary for the downswings, for all the bad things that will inevitably crush your soul while you play this game. Um, and, and I think vloggers and YouTube in general has just become this big platform. Um, there's obviously an appetite for it, an audience that wants to see these types of things. So like for the folks out there that are thinking, hmm, I could do that. I have a cat. Um, how do they <laughs> what, what do they need to do what, what are some some of the highest impact things they can do yeah shout out to brad owens cat so i mean i think that ultimately you have to start with wanting to make something in the first place because otherwise you're just going to burn out too fast there's just too many components that are so much like work that if you don't enjoy the core aspect of creation what are the components creation, what are the components so i mean like having an idea for something and a vision for what it could be as far as like the visual, if you're in the video medium, like what it could be and then actually taking the execution steps to get it there. And whether that's literally you sitting in front of a computer editing or whether it's you uh, organizing and hiring freelancers to edit and all this other stuff, like you have to find some sort of joy in, that process, whatever your process ends up looking like, it doesn't have to look the same for everybody. For me, when I first started out, it was, okay, I know that I'm like, about to uproot my whole life and kind of like, move and change how I'm deriving a lot of my income. And a lot of that's going to be poker. So I want to display that in some sort of a way that's like personal to me, but also focuses on the strategy of the game, because that's something that I love. Where, Where did you move from? What is um, the... I, yeah, I was living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time. Uh, this was right at the end of 2016. And I kind of knew like a few months out that I was going to be leaving and moving, uh, even though I hadn't done it physically yet. So I thought basically that was a good time to sort of kick it off and see where that led. But basically, when I when I when I first started, it was just sort of like show my life and the poker, whatever that means. And I didn't really have any idea how to edit videos, but I actually really enjoyed editing the videos, which was, I guess, kind of lucky for me, because if I hated it, I just would have stopped. But when I found that I liked editing it, I also figured out the things that I thought I could do better. And a lot of that was diving into sort of the rabbit hole of how to make better YouTube videos, which for me, I just like enjoy learning a new skill. And so I really loved like diving into other people's YouTube videos about making YouTube videos, which is sort of meta, but uh, (laughs) it was very fun to just sort of like improve at a skill. So it was like, yeah, poker is always the backbone, but there was this whole other skill set behind it as far as like the content creation side that I really enjoyed working on too. What software do you use to edit your videos? So I actually have an iMac for my work stuff. And so I use Final Cut Pro um, primarily. And that's just like what I've known. I actually started with iMovie though, <laughs> which uh, is actually not bad for a totally free piece of software, but 
graduated from that to Final Cut maybe like, I don't know, two years ago. Yeah, I used iMovie 2 on my Mac. And the problem was that it took like 45 minutes to load everything on my Mac. <laughs> my Mac was not powerful enough to run the software that it came with, right. um, which is not a good thing. It's not a good thing. I use Adobe Premiere Pro now. But uh, I, me and you are very different in the loving of the editing of the videos. <laughs> it, it, for me, it's mind-numbingly tedious. And, and the interesting thing about it, too, for me is, in a poker sense, I'm a lot of times the only person qualified to edit the video because I, only I know what to look for. I can't find a freelancer. I have to find like the perfect freelancer that knows things about poker in order to edit it like in the way that I want. So if anybody out there is like a Matt Vaughn that loves editing, hit me up. Send me an email. There's a spot for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we've we've actually found that with uh, with School of Cards too because it's you can't just hire someone off the street who's like a very solid editor because they just don't really know what they're looking for half the time. But we we're kind of lucky. We have uh, you know we have one or two guys who have just been around the company so long they have a better sense of things even though they're not poker players and then. We have like three or four of us who are poker players primarily, but can also, you know, hold our own on the editing floor too. Exactly. And for those of you, those of you too, that are looking for extra streams of income playing cards, learn how to edit videos and reach out to people. Like this is, this is pretty clear, right? There's a need for it and very limited folks can do it. But um, anyway, I'm digressing now. So you you love editing, you're, you go down the, the, rabbit hole of YouTube, um, learning how to make better YouTube videos. What, what was the, the most important thing that you learned? Like what, what has expedited your growth more than all the other things? Like, you know, let's Pareto principle the shit out of this, find the 20% that leads to <laughs> yeah. the 80%. Yeah. So I was, uh, I was actually going to get back to this, but it's, I think just consistency. Um, you, you can't rest on YouTube. You really have to be publishing frequently and ideally on some sort of a schedule i'm terrible at this but i <laughs> but it's like i i learned it the hard way basically the youtube algorithm that determines how your videos get placed in front of new eyes like not just your subscribers but other people as suggested content is super important so everything that you can learn about it is going to help you but the number one thing is just frequency of upload and consistency of upload so like for me i mean there's a lot of other stuff there too like different video lengths and so on and so forth like how basically how long you have somebody viewing your video and how likely they are to continue watching something on youtube whether that's your content or someone else's content are the two driving factors for youtube wanting to like promote your content to other people so i went i went through stints where i'd be like all right two videos this week because I was playing and I was pumped up and I had time to edit. And then of course, like I'd go on the inevitable, like two or three week, like, ah, I'm just kind of sick of this. I don't have the time. I just want to like watch Netflix, whatever. (laughs) And I mean, I was, I was lazy as hell back then, but, um, how long ago was this? Well, three years, like when I started the videos. Yeah. Way, way back then, three years ago, (laughs) back when I was a toddler. (laughs) So, yeah. So it was like, you know, I, I would see very significant growth in those periods where I had like two or three weeks of more than weekly content and then drop off like when I had a two or three week period with no video. And it's like very significant. 
And you can obviously kind of fake it for a little while, just like do a lot of videos for a period of time to grow. But then, you know, it's hard. Like if you're not consistent, then people sort of fall off. Like they come to expect what they come to expect. And so there's a component of it that's the algorithm, but there's also a component of it that's like human psychology where um, people expect the type of content that you've done in the past. And so uh, you kind of have to do something that's manageable, but ideally like never, ever go below one video a week. And I'm, again, I've been the terrible example of this. So, you know, do what I say, not as I do, if you're getting on YouTube, but. So the uh, most high impact thing they can do is a thing that you don't do. Right, That's... right. <laughs> but it's a thing that I've done. And yeah. uh, I, I had probably like a 18 month period where I never missed a week. And uh, I had a lot of weeks where I was doing more than one video. And I even, I experimented with this directly. Like, I had a one week period where I put out one video every single day. And I think that they were probably some of my worst videos I've ever done. Like just completely honestly, they were, they were not high value. Uh, I mean, like there was, there was value in them, but you know, for the amount of time that you had to sit there watching it, there wasn't enough value in there to justify the video. And that was my biggest period of growth ever. Like in that month, I think I, I think I almost tripled in size from like, 700 subscribers to like 2100 or something like that it was ridiculous um and of course that was unsustainable so i just went back to you know one video a week and back to a normal growth rate for me um but it, it goes to show that like if you have the drive to to have that consistency it's really powerful because just you get put in front of so many more eyes there's a couple of interesting components here for me number one the the subjectivity right like you're saying that it's some of the worst content that you put out there. However, you experienced the most growth you've ever experienced. So to me, there's this, there's gotta be some sort of disconnect, right? Number one, the content probably isn't as bad as you think it is. And (laughs) you probably think it's worse because you didn't spend the time that you, that you normally do on it. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. I think there's this, this opinion of self. There's also this story that, that I love. Um, uh, It's about clay pots, and these two groups of people that like they they make clay pots one person spends all week making one the other person spends all week making as many as they possibly can and the the people who spent the whole week making as many as they possibly could ended up outperforming the one by a not insignificant stretch right mm-hmm. because their process got better they got better at it they got quicker um they learned from their mistakes i think a lot of times when people are thinking about pulling the trigger. They just want to make sure everything's perfect. Yeah. And no matter what you do, the first piece of content that you create is almost always going to be shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. Like, sorry to burst, burst everybody's bubble here, but it's most likely not going to be very good. You get better through rep repetition, right? Yep. Um, so yeah, I would say that your videos probably weren't as bad as, as you, think they were so let's give yourself some credit (laughs) and uh number two like you said it's probably not sustainable you're probably gonna burn way out especially if you have trouble putting out one a week doing like seven straight or how would you say a month 30 30 straight so i mean it was it was a combination of factors so for one thing i didn't miss a week that that month like every week that month was at least one video a week most were two i think and then like that one week i had i had seven videos in a row daily yeah um as far as like, I mean, I definitely think that my standards have increased dramatically 
since then. Obviously, it's like, you know, whatever, two years ago or something that I put that content out. And I agree with you. It's not like they weren't valuable at all. But I, I think the fact of the matter is that YouTube is going to push the content based on the frequency enough that I'm going to be put in front of so many more people that even if the content's not as good, I'm going to retain some percentage of people. So like, for example, if I usually convert, you know, I don't know, 10% of viewers into subscribers, like if I just 10x the number of people that watch those videos over that time, then even if I dip to 5% or whatever, it's going to still, you know, still be beneficial for sure that period of time. Yeah, for sure. So changing gears a little bit, what's the most unexpected thing that's come from you doing your poker vlog? Um, definitely the, the positive engagement from people in the community. Um, I, I mean, like rationally, I always knew that, you know, there's going to be comments and interaction through social media and stuff like that. But I never really expected to meet people face to face who had seen my content and been in one way or another positively impacted by it. Like they either just enjoy it for entertainment value or they got something out of it strategically or it just re-sparked their interest in the game. And I never, I mean, you talk, you talk with like Andrew Nimi, it seems like he had more of a vision for his content. And I like just never really had that from the beginning. So I never really had this concept in mind that <laughs> these like poker videos that were like sort of half about my life and half about the game could actually foster that in people. So I think that was the most unexpected and probably one of the most rewarding parts of the content creation as well. Any particular memories come to mind about these meetups, people seeing you in real life um, and yeah. being like, hey, I know you. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple there's a couple good ones. Like, I think the funniest one was I actually got recognized at my local grocery store by someone who's watched the vlog. And that's like, it sounds so <laughs> mundane and like so silly. But to me, that was just like mind boggling because the only places I'd ever been like recognized before were inside of a poker room pretty much or like right outside of a poker room. Uh, so getting recognized in my grocery store, that was just kind of funny. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that was rewarding so much as just like very surprising. What, what did you feel? Like what, 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 did, what did you feel when somebody's like points you out in the, in the grocery store? Well, so, so I was like literally just out of the checkout line and like walking out the door. And I, you know, you, you know, when you like hear someone maybe say your name and you like kind of, you know, attune to it, like you, you know, that it's like, you're going to listen to that more. And I like, I think I hear somebody say my name, but like, I'm at the grocery store, like nobody, like, and I work at home. It's not like I'm going to run into a lot of people I know at the grocery store. So I like, don't really turn around. Right. And then I hear it again. And so I turn around and it's just this guy who's watching my videos and, <laughs> and it's saying hi. So like the first emotion is just like complete shock and surprise. Like what is happening right now? Um, and then just like, you know, there's a little bit of that social awkwardness of like, I've never been in this situation before. <laughs> what is the uh -huh. protocol? Yeah. Um, but then it was, you know, it was cool. Like we just kind of shook hands. He said, you know, I really enjoy watching your stuff. And, and that was that, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't really a really big thing, but it, I think it was so memorable because uh, like, you know, it was just that unexpected. The other, the other really memorable ones are just kind of like, they start to blur a little bit, but basically just meeting people inside of like meetup game contexts or, um, or just outside of poker rooms. And really the people who say like, I got back into poker more because of you. 
those ones I love the most um, because even though, yeah, I want to provide value through like strategy and I want to provide entertainment and stuff, I think that providing excitement about the game is probably the highest value thing that I can do both for those people, but also like for the game of poker itself. I agree. And people need that emotional spark. Uh, poker, poker, and I've spoken about this at length with like Elliot Rowe, but poker is an emotional game as much as it is a logical, um, rational game. And lots of people, most people can have a bad taste in their mouth after playing cards for a specific period of time because who likes getting crushed all the time? Like who likes just always getting getting beat down? So providing that emotional encouragement I think is a huge service to the community. Um, when you think of joy in your poker career, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Oh, I mean the first the first memory of like really big deal positive emotion is got to be uh final tabling the MSPT that was in like 2015 I was still working a nine to five I wasn't really I mean I was taking it seriously but I wasn't you know it wasn't my full-time thing by any stretch what were you doing what was your nine to five I was working in healthcare software um I worked for a company called Epic that did um, electronic medical records and it was like one of the biggest employers in in Madison basically okay now that I've forgotten that because <laughs> that sounds like a very boring gig. I can see why I can see why you chose poker. Um, so so you're doing the medical thing and you have what was the buy into this tournament? Uh, it's an eleven hundred dollar uh, sort of like regional event. It was a, a tour that I mean, they still are very active. They're actually still growing, um, but mostly active in the Midwest. And so it was a series that I was driving around to all the local stops basically um and i think this was probably only my third or fourth time playing it and but my first cash and it was like a 600 person field and you know it's like an 1100 dollars tournament so i of course i think i'm like the best player in the field (laughs) at the time i thought it was um and so i you know i i make it to the final table and uh, it was like streamed and everything. And it was just a very cool experience. And I, I think that a lot of people sometimes get in the heads or like too obsessed with the payout jumps or whatever. And I just remember being so happy to be there, just like extremely grateful to actually be still in the tournament and getting to play and being on stream and just enjoying myself. And it's hard to capture that. Uh, again, like you don't really get that a lot of times in cash games. I think I think there are some really positive, like camaraderie type moments you can get in like home games and 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 with some groups of regulars. But final tabling a tournament is pretty much uh, pretty much the top of the bill for me. Yeah, uh, I've only I think I've only made one live final table. I play almost no tournaments, always cash game, and there's a thrill. Of course, there's an adrenaline, especially when you get you make it down. This is what you're there for. Right. And then yep. the whole time you're, you're thinking, at least I think, and I think like, okay, there's 
400 people left that have like a one in 400 chance of taking this down. And like every people just keep getting knocked out. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh shit, I can see the finish line. Um, and it's the same for online tournaments of which I I have made a number of final tables there. But, um, what was first place in this tournament? Do you remember? I mean, I know Uh, you remember. Come on. Of course I remember. Um, it was 150,000. What were your um, thoughts about that 150k? Like, what what would you have done? It, did you did you win it? I don't even know. This is my bad <laughs> research coming out. I don't think you won it. But, I, uh, didn't, I didn't win it. Um, no. So, I, yeah. Again, I mean, like, I honestly don't think I was thinking about the payout jumps that much at the time. Which, frankly, I probably should have been more from a strategic perspective. Like, there probably I there's got to be some ICM mistakes in there. But um, I actually I have the stream still exists somewhere. I think on the MSPT poker website, like they have all their old streams and there was no commentary. Like there was a technical difficulty. And so there's no commentary on it, but the stream exists. And I've actually watched it back and I've like years later and I thought like, you know, I played pretty damn well, <laughs> but nice. I wasn't really thinking about the 150,000. You know, I, I think I honestly thought about that more after the fact in the moment I was just pretty much in the game i like there were moments of probably thinking like holy shit i just locked up like 10 grand oh my god i've got 15 grand now 20 grand because that was a big a huge amount of money to me at the time right like relatively speaking and but the 150 it was like so far out of reach still it just didn't seem real like twenty thousand dollars still felt like a real amount of money to me but 150 was just like an impossible sum at the time like i just couldn't how much were you making a year um, I mean, I was making pretty good money. I think I was making like 70 or 75 K a year. So two um, years of your life, if you take this down. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a, it was a big deal. So, uh, yeah, but definitely after the fact, I thought about it because, you know, whatever hands I lost that I got unlucky on or that I could have played differently, you know, it's like, obviously I had that some level of rumination. I think, I think it's impossible to avoid that when you, when you go so, so close, I ended up busting fifth place for like, 33 grand which was still like by far my biggest cash ever and to this day is like still in my top five or top four or something like that so you know it's like it was great it was an amazing experience i still look back on it fondly i don't really think about like what if i'd won it anymore but the (laughs) i still remember the the bust out hand because uh i got slow rolled like pretty (laughs) damn badly and it was, I mean, I shouldn't even say slow roll because it wasn't on purpose. So it's not really a slow roll. It's more of a net roll, whatever technicalities. I ended up, so I lost like queens all in pre to ace 10. And then I was very short. I got like one jam through and I probably had like eight big blinds. Uh, I was on the button and jammed pocket sevens, just like uber slam dunk. I like kind of want to get called to, you know, get back in it, whatever. The big blind starts tanking. I'm like, this is fucking fantastic. excuse my language you know it's like this old guy but he was the most crazy player i've ever played with i played like a number of hands with him when we were down to two tables and so i'm like if he's thinking about it i'm just like in stellar shape here he's got like deuces he's got like ace five suited and he just finally sighs heavily and drops in the call waits to see what i have and then rolls over the pocket tens. That's so just <laughs> absolutely wrecked. Um, and we, we don't get there somehow. Somehow. <laughs> it's the one you needed. 
there's always yeah. every tournament I've ever played. There's always the one you needed. It's always the last one. <laughs> you always, yeah, you got to just win your last hand. That's what they tell me in the tournaments. But I've only done that. I've only done that uh, once live and several times online. So I, I am unsure. I've never won any. I, I would consider like a major win, like 50k plus uh, for a tournament. I've never been to 50k plus tournament. I've won 30k. I've won 15k. I've staked somebody who won a tournament for 70k. <laughs> I don't know if that counts. It's close. So let's let's look at the the opposite question now. When you think of pain in your poker career, what's the first memory that comes to mind? Uh, busting out of the main event the first year that I ever played it, because the main events. I mean, I know it's like sort of silly to say another tournament moment, but like the main events, like a tournament that can't really be compared to anything else. I don't know if you've played it, but it's it's so hard to put to words. But everybody who's played it gets it. Because it's this one tournament that is like, first of all, it's like the perfect event, right? It's like got the two hour levels. It's a hugely recreational field. There's just a buzz to it and an excitement that doesn't exist in any other tournament anywhere. And so you're in it. Uh, you have all these chips, like you feel invincible. Your table draws great. Like, I mean, you're not always, but usually your table draws great. And, you know, you're almost like, probably like a 70% chance to make day two if you're if you're a solid winning player. So like you're most likely into day two. And on a lot of other tournaments, you don't make day two unless you're like, you know, 15% or whatever. So you get to day two. You're like, holy shit, I made day two of this tournament. And this is the biggest deal tournament of the year. <laughs> right? So you have all these building emotions. And for someone who's never played a $10,000 tournament before that moment, this is my biggest entry ever. Uh, the most I've ever risked on myself of my own action. I think I had like 40% of my own action that year, which was a huge deal. I think the most I'd ever put down on a tournament before that was probably like $1,500 or something like that. And, and then, you know, you're playing well, you're feeling good, and then things just start to crumble. And these expectations that you had become reality, which is you weren't anywhere close to winning the tournament. You weren't anywhere close to fifty thousand dollars. What you know? was the expectation in your head? Well, like, I mean, and I don't, I don't mean expectation like rationally. I thought I was going to win the main event on day two, but from an emotional perspective, you know, I think we dupe ourselves when we're playing well and when things are going our way that things are just going to continue. And especially back then, I was much less well-rounded and i had a much worse understanding of like how quickly things could just turn to shit in in a poker tournament and so you know like i think it's no surprise that my biggest emotional moments in poker came both a couple or a few several years ago like i haven't had those big highs or those huge lows as much as i progressed as a player and as a person because I just have a better understanding of the game of how I personally fit into that game and of like controlling my own emotionality, basically. And I don't mean controlling, like suppressing, like, Oh man, don't be excited about winning, but just in the sense that I'm, I'm more level no matter what happens. Um, I'm still kind of a basket case, but like relatively speaking. <laughs> I, I mean, there's power and immersion and experience and getting the reps in uh, just in any venture that, that you take when you move up stakes you know, you're playing two five, you move up to five ten. 
um, then all of a sudden you're playing 2K pots all the time, whereas at 2.5 you were not. It's going to be scary. You're going to have an emotional reaction when you start losing some 2K, 3K, 4K pots. But over time, you get a little numb to it, and it's just normal. It's just part of the, the normal thing. I will say that the biggest sort of emotional thing that I've had happen in poker that's not from like several years ago that was pretty recent was last year I won the Ignition 100K guarantee uh, for like 16 grand. And it wasn't, it wasn't so much that I'd won it as much as I won it on stream. And that was really crazy because like I just started streaming, you know, several months prior and I wasn't even really sure if I was going to keep doing it or if, how much I liked it. And uh, so to have like that kind of performance and to see like the viewership numbers grow over the course of the tournament and then to win it on stream was that's probably like still a top three emotional moment for me. But again, like part of that wasn't necessarily uh, even poker so much as like the ego part of me that is like wanting to be viewed as whatever as like a good player as someone who's uh skilled and worth watching and worth credibility an and stuff like that exactly so uh you know and again i still think that those things will lessen over time too but that's definitely one of the one of the recent ones for me well you are a human being yeah. these are normal human wants and desires uh what i was going to say is before now that I, I remember my brain sort of working again, is it's always easy to convince ourselves that we're not running well, that we're playing well. Like, ask somebody that's on a heater, and you hear the same statement over and over and over again. I'm not even getting that lucky. Like, <laughs> I'm just playing super well. I'm not even running that good. Like, it's this weird, um, especially like for a poker tournament, where you're really at risk most of the time and things go south at the drop of a hat you can just think like oh i'm just i'm playing super duper well um when the reality is you you For just sure. ran well you, you've avoided coolers you've avoided bad spots and, and you've held when you've needed to hold so bearing that in mind um in such a limited sample size as any single tournament um most like again most of my experiences are cash games where somebody's on a heater for like whatever a month straight but like a, a tournament, it, it's just, it's hard to keep a level head and to keep the ego in check and to say like, okay, like just make good decisions. Just continue making good decisions. I'm not a God. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I have no access to things that um, nobody else has access to. Like just keep yourself in check and do the best that you can. But it's easier said than done. What is up, you future star of poker, you? Coach Brad here, and I just wanted to take a moment to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're sitting there wondering to yourself, why? Why is Coach Brad promoting this PKC Poker app thing? Allow me a moment to explain my why. Battling in cash games has been my livelihood for the past 15 years. It's how I survive and put food on the table for my family which makes it imperative that I either test out or seek qualified opinions on all of the poker platforms on the market. One juicy find can mean the difference between a meh year and an amazing family vacation in Hawaii kind of year. With that said, I have tried almost all of the major poker apps on the market to date, and despite the hype about amazingly juicy games, have come away from the experience unsatisfied. 
I was just never able to find success against seemingly weak competition and, in one specific case, was getting outright destroyed by passive villains playing more than 50% of their hands. What on earth was going on, right? After many evenings sitting in the bathtub, wondering if I had lost it, I finally dug into the data and learned something that shouldn't have been too surprising to you. These dudes were colluding and superusing their pants off. So I swore off those free money, decentralized devil apps and decided to go back to my more familiar streets of ignition. It was then that I was contacted by a good friend of mine who turned out to be the vice president of worldwide operations at PKC. Him and I had a long, in-depth conversation about security, the ecosystem, and the future direction of PKC, and he managed to convince me to give it a shot. That shot turned into an incredible six months with an hourly rate that's about five times what it would have been playing on any other US platform. As it turns out, I didn't forget how to play. I just needed to be on a level playing field to return to my crushing ways. I have no doubt that you, my community, my audience is going to play online poker somewhere. And I want to be damn sure that you don't go through the pain and frustration I felt by messing around with any poker app besides PKC. This is why promoting PKC is a no-brainer for me. I love you, I love my community, and I want to put you in the best position to succeed at this game that we both love so much. So if you'd like to join me in the streets of PKC, simply head to enhanceyouredge.com slash pkcpod and get your invite code to play. You must have an invite code to play and you must be 21 years of age or older. One more time, that's enhanceyouredge.com slash pkcpod to get your invite code. Best of luck, and now, on with the show. So, what, what's something that, that people who are beginning their poker journey, what do you think they don't spend enough time thinking about? Wow, that's a huge question. Just lob up there for me. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no segue, no, no lube. We're just, boom, straight to it. <laughs> No, I mean, I think that most people who are either starting out in the game or, or you know, take the game, like, uh, play a lot, but maybe don't, like, study or think through the game a lot, are just not really, like, considering the whys of their action enough. Like, all right, I, I you know, they, they play a hand with somebody and then they review it after the fact and it's like, they explain what they were doing, but a lot of times there's not a clear why. And I think a lot of times people have like a surface level why to why they do something. But then if you probe further and just ask why again, they, like it starts to fall apart and there's actually not really a solid process there. So um, we, we like to not to like plug school of cards too much, but like we like to use kind of this five why method where it's like, OK, you know, uh, let's say you're examining like why you lost uh, in a session or something. You're like, OK, well. Why did I lose two thousand dollars at two five yesterday? And it's like, uh, well, you know, I lost this huge hand where uh, it was kind of a cooler, you know, set over set or something. And it's like, okay, well, why? It's like, well, actually, I kind of thought I was beat, but like maybe I was a little tired. I've been playing there for like you know ten hours. And it's like, okay, why? Like, well, I haven't really been getting that much sleep and whatever. Like, that's kind of a more 
meta example that's like outside of strategy, but I think it works inside of strategy too, where like if you start really probing at like the actual reasons for doing things, you can get a lot deeper into how poker actually works and then figure out from there like what your strengths and weaknesses are and how to build from there. And is this your process for regularly improving your game? What does that look like? Um, It's changed a lot over time. Um, You know, like I basically don't consume content anymore now. So it's, I don't want to say like my process should be anybody else's process because it really depends on where you're at. But for me, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that's improved me as a player over time has been that like self-reflection where I'm examining hands I played or sessions I played and just figuring out what I think are mistakes and why, and then like trying to get down to the root cause of them. And today, like what I do to work on my game is basically like mostly strategy construction and thinking about adjusting to different players in my games. Um, What do you mean by strategy construction? Like let's go more granular. Sure. Um, So when you sit down to play a poker game, you know, you can either sit down with like no plan or you can sit down with some plan. And I would say that strategy construction for me comes down to having a plan. And that can be very high level. Like it can be, I'm going to play tight and I'm going to value bet well, and I'm not really going to bluff a lot because this lineup is too call happy or whatever. And it's specifically based on the lineup you're playing against. I have defaults, but yeah, I would, I, want to at least have a plan when I when I sit down in what I know to be a particular kind of lineup or to have a plan for how to change my approach um, as the lineup develops or as I know what the lineup is. But, you know, you can get as granular as like, here are the lines that I take on particular board textures with these parts of my ranges. Like, you know, strategy construction can go as deep as you want it to go. Um, and so for me, like over the last year or two, it's been all about really defining what my strategy is because for a long time I just kind of sat down and did whatever and like it worked but it like a lot of stuff didn't work and so it's been kind of a process of refining picking apart the things that aren't working and why and finding more of the things that do work and doing them more. (laughs) Let's look at this in an example so let's imagine that you know you're playing in in a game like a week ago Um, and just your, your most recent game like, what does this strategy construction look like for the latest game that you've played in? Sure. So the last game that I played live was a meetup game, actually. This is why you have the, have the meetup game. So yeah. you have uh, <laughs> a scouting report ahead of time. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like, normally the meetup games are pretty loosey-goosey, I would say. Um, there's a lot of splashing around. Why? Why is that? Well, I think there's more of like a home game atmosphere. Um, most of the people, I mean, I mean, almost everybody there watches my videos. And so they're kind of there to hang out just as much as they're there to try to win, I would say, and probably myself included. But basically, you just kind of find that it's a it's a different atmosphere. And I think the atmosphere at the table live can have a strong bearing on how people actually approach the game even if they are not planning to have that impact them pretty much. But so knowing, knowing what I know about how meetup games tend to be, I, let's say my game plan roughly is to come in and uh, play a somewhat tighter version of my general opening ranges, maybe a more aggressive three bet 
style because I think people are going to respond poorly to that by calling too much and then playing a little bit fitter full post. And then ultimately from there, I'm just going to sit down and play. Now in practice, I sat down and it wasn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) So this game, this game was probably one of like the tougher lineups and we ran it as a three, five instead of as a one, three. So that could have, you know, had something to do with it. There were, there was also, we actually had Dan Zach in the game as seen on live at the bike. He just came out to hang out. And so he threw a little bit of a wrench in that, like depending on what seat he had been in, I might've had to change up what I was doing. He ended up being three seats to my left. So I didn't three bet as much. He ended up cold four betting me like, uh, you know, three hands into the day something. And I couldn't, I couldn't do as much wide opening because I knew he would be three betting aggressively if I was just like way out of line. So I, I went basically for a tighter opening when he was in the blinds, wider opening when he had already folded pre-flop. A lot of my strategy stuff was actually based on him because I think he was the best player in the game by far, which I think should be obvious anyway at a three, five game. You got to fight fire with fire, man. You just got to, he starts three bet and we got a four bet. We got to yeah. just get in there. Just go well, to war. <laughs> so, so he did three bet me a number of times. I chose to call because he seemed to be three betting me out of the blinds primarily. So I was calling a lot in position, which might not have been the right adjustment against such a strong player, but I chose to do it because <laughs> I wanted to. <laughs> and this is what I mean about how like strategy construction can be impacted by a lot of things. Like in that moment, like, when am I going to get a chance to play hands against such a high caliber player for so little money? <laughs> and so I don't really mind taking some, you know, maybe marginal spots and then just kind of learning from it to examine later. Now, I did end up playing a three-bet pot against him where I run her to, run her to straight, run her to good old gutter with a pocket pair. So that was cool. Congrats. Um, but yeah, I, play, I played it great. <laughs> Congrats. You got very lucky. Yeah. Well done. Um, but yeah, from there, like, for example, you can also have like strategy adjustments against a, an individual player or against the table at large. So it's like there was one player at the table who actually wasn't there, like for the meetup game per se. He just kind of like ended up on the list and in the game and clearly didn't know who I was or anything. And so like I got to kind of do some stuff against him that. Did you just, tell him you sit him down? no (laughs) don't you know who i am (laughs) right right haven't you heard of me (laughs) they recognize me in the grocery store motherfucker oh oh boy yeah (laughs) i knew i was gonna i I was gonna regret that story um no but so it was like there was some stuff that i knew i would never get credit for against other players in the table like i i'm never check raise bluffing this river spot but against this guy who i saw was like making weird kind of value value bluff bets on the river whenever he like saw weakness giant air quotes on earlier streets like i just got to check raise bluff the river like twice against him in like a three-hour period that's just like never happening most of the time without making like a pretty big adjustment in that game and, and i like what you said earlier it's like even though you can construct a strategy pre-session when you sit down on the table like the, the game itself is an organism that changes based on position, based on who's on your left, who's on your right, who sits in the game, who comes in. So like your baseline strategy is almost always altered, no matter what it is. And so making those in-game adjustments, being flexible while you're at the table 
is just absolutely necessary to survive and thrive playing cards. Um, if you could, if you could gift all poker players one book, whether it's related to poker or not, what book would that be and why? <laughs> well, I, I, maybe I wouldn't actually do this because it might destroy the poker economy as we know it. Um, but I guess fooled by randomness. It just it's such a good book for breaking apart our biases and assumptions about uh, at least in the context of poker, like variance and what actually constitutes chance or patterns or, you know, things like this, because I, I just see so much. And this isn't it's not just recreational players. It's not just people who are unstudied. It's also rampant in people who take the game pretty seriously that they just don't really have an appreciation or deep understanding of of randomness and chance and like what that actually looks like on paper, because, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to look at this nebulous concept of the long run in poker. And there's just, there's just no getting there as a human, like mentally. I mean, you might get there in your lifetime, maybe, but like mentally it's impossible because you're looking at your day, your session, maybe your week, maybe your month. And even all of those views are largely going to be, marred by the emotions from how how the shorter bits of those have gone all of your biases and it applies to gto theory as well and running all the solvers and all of these things i'm a big randomness person the book that i tell people all the time uh on the show is rock break scissors which is also just on randomness and human beings being like the worst random number generators that have ever been created. Like (laughs) you can't give somebody a spot where they raise 31% of the time and call the other 69% of the time. They're just not going to do that. Like there's no way to, to do it as human beings, Um, which in a way is very good because it means that human beings are predictable behavior. You know, people fall into patterns all the time that they're unaware of. And, um, like in my conversation with Matt Berkey, he, he just said in a live poker setting, like deductive reasoning conquers all. And it's just such a true statement. Like just use your deductive reasoning while you're playing cards and, um, don't try to implement these GTO strategies because number one, you're not going to be able to do it. And number two, it all relies on you being the person to input the information. And if you mess it up, then your result isn't even what you want it to be. Right. And a lot of times like like baseline strategies are great. Baseline strategies, they give you a place to be flexible. But if you just apply a baseline strategy to everyone who come in all different shapes and sizes, you're just going to get crushed. Like you're just going to get smashed at the poker table and you'll never know what hit you. And you think that you're doing the right thing and that everybody's getting super lucky. But no, it's you making poor decisions. Yeah, I I think I like one thing you said, uh, especially like humans are predictable. And it's like, yeah, in most contexts, like that's really good. Like, it's really good that I know how my girlfriend's going to respond when I, you know, buy her flowers or when I'm a jerk, you know, it's like, uh, it's good to kind of like, know those those things about people. And in so many contexts, like being a human being, like from an evolutionary perspective, is just not good for being a poker player like like you uh you know you've come to learn that the berries that don't kill you are like over there so you <laughs> want to go over there right it's like well at the poker table if you jam the turn you know with 70 percent of the equity and you lose the hand it's like well 
you're being sort of conditioned to not jam the turn when you have 70% equity anymore. And like, maybe you try to get a safe river, but like, it might've been the right play. So there's like all this weird stuff where we have to like unlearn so many things before we can even like begin to learn them at the poker table, which I always found really weird. This is why you have so many old men saying that ace king is like a horrible hand. It's like <laughs> right. Anna Kornikova looks good, but never wins. Right. <laughs> uh, am I right? Um, but it's like, we have a negativity bias that gives us feedback and we remember the times that we lose where we flop top set and it doesn't end up working out and just getting over that and just realizing that like at the end of the day we have a decision and we do the best that we can to collect information to make the best possible decision that we can and that's all we can do every single hand so you know the point is to get better at information collection, get better at dissecting that information, finding what is of value, what we need to collect. Half the time when I have a coaching session with my students or somebody gives me a hand history, the actual solution is not even important. What's important is the lack of information that they give me when trying to solve this problem. Like what could you have looked for? What, what information could have been available that you missed? And human beings like you know, we're just funny creatures in general Uh, about the randomness. It's like if a dude raises and he's on my right, right. And I three bet him twice, twice in a row. Do you think I'm going to have a weaker hand or a stronger hand when I three bet him the third time in a row? Stronger, for sure. Stronger. But his, for his (laughs) perception is okay. I'm ready to go to war. Now this dude is fucking with me. Right. (laughs) So then like, then he decides to four bet and goes off like a rocket in a spot where, I know that that's going to be his reaction. You can only push somebody down so many times. But uh, because if human reactions are predictable, you can use this, you can implement this into your game. You just have to think about it the right way and not let your emotions get the best of you because it's very, very, very easy for that to, for that to happen. Um, got a few more questions and we'll get you out of here, man. What's something that my audience would be surprised to learn you're horrible at? I don't know if there's anything I'm horrible at that they'd be surprised to know, but <laughs> I, uh, I am not a dancer and my, my girlfriend, um, used to take swing dancing pretty seriously. Um, and like East coast, East coast and West coast. And so like, I've been several times with her to like beginner lessons and whatever. And I, like, I'm a pretty like athletic person as far as like, in the distribution of all human beings goes like I have good hand-eye coordination, but I just like, can't get into dance. I'm also very musical, but I just can't get into dance. Like I, I do not feel the bodily like urges to move in ways that are in time with the music. And so I don't even know if it's that I'm bad, but I like all just almost refuse. What is, what's, what's the feedback your girlfriend gives you about your dancing? What did she well, say? So, so she, she, she says that I'm much better than most beginners, but that I just need to like get over myself basically, which is maybe true. But yeah, I don't know. It's like, it's a, it's a special combination of like the social anxiety of being on display to other people combined with like a skill that I'm not really good at yet. And I just like, I, when I hear music, like I want to make music. I don't want to like, flail my body around (laughs) (laughs) by the way i'm horrible at dancing too this is probably no surprise for people listening so horrible that i just refuse to do it and i won't do it 
and again, I, I'm with you. Like, I feel like my hand-eye coordination is way above average. Um, I love playing all sports. I love all do just doing all the things, but dancing terrifies the living bejesus out of me. And I don't know why. Maybe we need to do like an Elliot Rose session to get to the root, this, our subconscious cause of being so terrified. Of I'm dancing. pretty sure it originates in middle school. And what ha- what happened that. in middle school? No, 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 no leaving just, it that we got to no. go. We got to, what, what happened in middle school? Generically, not for me specifically. No, no, I don't. I there's too much truth in that statement to ignore it. No, no, there's there was no like one defining moment, but uh, like I went to I actually went to camps where they had dances, and I like hated those because it was like you you didn't know how you were supposed to dance. Like I'm I've always been a rule follower, right? (laughs) So if I don't know the rules of the dance, there's just no hope for me, right? And uh, swing dancing is actually better in the sense that like there there are largely a set number of like steps and 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 moves that you can kind of learn as a beginner so like i can hold my own but i i just feel very weird because it's like you're just shifting between all these moves that i don't want to like figure out what i'm going to do next and then i'm going to probably trip over myself if i do something too complicated and then like you know you get way in your head so i think i think like the whole middle school thing was just mostly the social anxiety part where it's like okay i'm this you know some hormonal teenager and i don't want to look like an idiot in front of these girls probably uh but but no nothing particularly traumatic happened to me in middle school so there's this like this connection between poker too because live poker is a social activity that we Mm -hmm. do in front of people do you have this anxiety of doing something idiotic at the poker table Uh, have you felt that How, how did you get over it Um, well, so there's this interesting correlation, um, that I'm not going to be able to attribute to wherever it originates from, but there's a correlation between, uh, pressure and performance. And basically if the higher level of skill you have at something, the better your performance will be with pressure and the lower your skill the worse your performance will be with pressure. And I think this is probably somewhere in between skill and perceived skill. So take that with a grain of salt. But basically, like, if I'm worried that I might suck at something, and then you put pressure on me, I'm gonna suck. <laughs> but if I think I'm pretty good, and I'm and I'm and I am like, actually pretty good. And then you add pressure. <laughs> <laughs> so if I think I'm pretty good, and I actually am, um, I like the well, caveat. So, I mean, that, that's a whole other podcast <laughs> as far as poker goes. But yeah, um, yeah. So like, for example, playing on a live stream for a big poker tournament final table, like that pumps me up. I'm I'm excited to go. I'm not nervous about doing something dumb. I'm excited about proving myself. And I think that maybe if I got super into dance somehow, if I got over the hump and I got to the point of being like competent, it would probably go the same way where I'm like, yeah, I'd probably enjoy competing. Uh, Lord of the dance. Yeah. Matt Vaughn, Lord of the (laughs) dance. That's, that's going to be my new nickname after this podcast. (laughs) We'll have uh, episodes of you dancing in your, in your vlog coming soon. Yeah. Maybe we just, you you just need to (laughs) allegedly two weeks. Um, I think like there's there is a correlation between experimentation and not not having this fear of looking at it like an idiot um, when playing poker. And I was very lucky early in my career to be friends with Vanessa Selbst 
And I remember the very first WSOP final table that she made. It was streamed. Um, we communicated on AOL Instant Messenger. If that like, yes. if that uh, <laughs> date, <laughs> dates me at all, but um, you know, she's messaging me. She's like, "Hey, I'm at this final table. Like, watch the stream. Blah blah blah." And she like five bet shoves deuce five suited. This is like the first her entry into the thing, and, and like, you don't understand how proud of her I was for that. Like, just like. <laughs> this is a person that like does not give a shit. She sees what, what needs to happen and she pulls the trigger a hundred percent. And somebody like that, even though she went flamed out spectacularly in that tournament, they're going to have long-term success at poker because they're willing to put themselves out there and figure out what works and what doesn't work. Um, And that's somebody that you can work with like as a coach, as a player, the people that are not going to get there, are the people that are too afraid to have a theory, put it in action, and then learn from it moving forward because they just never learn. They never grow as a poker player. I think I think that ties back into content creation too because uh, in some ways, like especially vlogging, but all forms of content creation are, are really like putting yourself out there to be judged and criticized by the world. And uh, knowing that you have something of value to offer isn't the whole thing. You got to also be willing to, you know, pull the trigger and, and do it. And like you said, a lot of people getting started is the biggest hump because they want it to be perfect. They need it to be just so, and really like getting started is kind of always the catalyst. I think you just, you get out there and, and you go from there. It's an emotional game. You have to deal with people saying that you suck because there will be so many people that say that you suck and that, you know, that like people, we have a negativity bias, right? Where we, gravitate towards the negative comments and so like pressing publish is tough there's a book that i love by stephen pressfield do the work and pressing publish sending it off is like one of the highest forms of resistance that that you can face um his first screenplay i believe it was like godzilla returns or something like that and like he he put the review of it in the book and it was like it was something along the lines of I hope Stephen Pressfield isn't the real name of the screenplay writer for his family's sake, right? Oh, wow. <laughs> like, just <laughs> totally, brutal. totally brutal, right? But like, he kept writing, he kept on, he kept creating, and he's had obviously a very, very successful career. And like, you just have to that fear of pulling the trigger, that fear of publishing, that fear of reaching out to people for help. You just have to get over it, and like, you are going to crash and burn some. That's part of the journey but you just have to put yourself out there. And that, that's really how you get to any measure of success. For sure. Okay, let's fast forward. Got two more questions. 15 years in the future, what are your accomplishments going to be in the poker field? Um, well, first of all, I'll say it's like completely impossible to know. Uh, po- poker is like just advancing so rapidly. I would say there's a very non-zero chance I'm not even like in the game 15 years from now. I disagree. I, I, I think like live, live poker progresses much, much slower than online poker. Sure, sure. And by the way, I don't, I don't mean to say like I'll be not in the game because I'm lost and forgotten, but more so that I'm on to other things. I, I shouldn't have said those back to back. But Yeah, you'll be like Dan, Dan Bilzerian. You'll be, yeah, I'll be Dan Bilzerian. Too, too, big, too big for the game. <laughs> I'll, I'll be big-timing everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean like, 
I think that the things that I would like to have on my poker resume in that amount of time would be definitely a WSOP bracelet. Um, that's, that's something I would really like to accomplish. Um, but I also know that it might not happen. Like I'm not playing 70 tournaments every year. So it's just, <laughs> it, might, it might not come to be. How many are you playing? Uh, well, this past year, yeah, this past year, I think I played 30 or 35. Um, and I was pretty happy with it because I, I felt like I had the right balance of playing, taking breaks and still like enjoying myself. Did we win? Uh, not this year. It was actually my first non-winning year in like four years at the WSOP. And, uh, it was the first year where I had just about all of myself. <laughs> so that was fun. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but it does make sense. But that's the first year I really played like a somewhat full schedule. I think the year before I played like 20 and the year before that it was like 10. Um, so yeah, but I, I would, I think over the next few years, I'll play a pretty similar amount somewhere between 25 and, and 35. And uh, hopefully we get there. But if not, that's okay. Uh, I would just love to still be around in the game and enjoying the game, honestly, in whatever capacity that means for me at the time. Like that sounds really like a cop out answer. I guess it is, but what about the vlog? Where do you want the vlog to be? So I don't think the vlog will. First of all, I never had an end game. I I I definitely have. I'm definitely closer to understanding one now than I did when I started it. Of course, but you know, in 15 years, the vlog won't exist. There's just almost no way um, in in the capacity that it is right now. As far as like me putting out weekly content that is largely pretty similar like formulaic of some combination of my life and like the most recent poker session it's just like first of all the demand is unlikely to be there in 15 years and i think the space will be so saturated with people so much better than me at both the game and also content creation that i am very unlikely to succeed in that space uh for that amount of time I disagree. I think there's there's first mover advantage. Like there, there's first sure. mover advantage in, in all things. Like even Twitch streams. Some sure. people can have like horrible, horrible Twitch streams, but like they were there on day one, so they get the traction. Yeah, I mean, not not to get too off track. Twitch is actually way worse for that than YouTube. Like Twitch has even more of the first mover because you only find content by viewer count, pretty much. Uh, at least on YouTube, like there's search functionality and they're actually like showing new videos by small channels to everybody's potentially. But but yeah, I'm with you. Like I have a I have a leg up for sure on like people coming in now. I just think that a combination of like my interests and the saturation of that space and the the poker economy itself, like all of that in 15 years is just so in flux that it's very unlikely that matt's matt vaughn's poker vlog is gonna like look even remotely the same at that point now i don't i don't mean to like tease anything out here but my girlfriend and i are talking about getting a dog in the somewhat near future so you you might see a matt vaughn dog vlog (laughs) you can tease as much as you want sir that's kind of the point of this show is to tease things um we have dancing and dogs coming to the matt vaughn poker vlog scooping everybody else you heard it here first guys (laughs) <laughs> absolutely yep so where can everybody find you on sure. the world wide web sure so uh number one space is just youtube you can search matt vaughn or matt Von poker you can spell it correct or incorrect you'll probably find me um 
So YouTube, uh, I do stream on Twitch, but I, I haven't been streaming super consistently. But if you want to check me out there, Matt Vaughn Poker. Um, and then schoolofcards.com is where I do pretty much all of my uh, like higher level strategy content with the training site and also personal coaching. Um, you can reach out to me about coaching via like social media and stuff like that. But generally speaking, I prefer to work with people who are kind of going through a curriculum. Um, it just kind of, I've found helps as far as like keeping people on a path. And as long as you set them at the right place on the path, having that curriculum is super powerful because everybody knows where we're at, what the expectations are and uh, what the goals are for moving forward. Got it. So you can reach out to Matt about coaching, but he's not going to coach you. So (laughs) (laughs) good luck doing that guys. Um, what, what can people expect? Maybe they're not familiar with your YouTube channel. Um, besides the two sure. minute long uh, shoe, <laughs> shoe montages, the dancing and the dogs, uh, what's the value of, of your of your vlog? Yeah, um, it's it's funny. Like I feel myself not wanting to answer that question because I I have a I mean, I think most people suffer from this, but I have a problem trying to say the things that I think I do well, but I'm going to try. I'm going to power through. Um, so what people have told me is one of the best qualities about my vlog is that I have a way of speaking about hands that is very accessible. And so even though I may be thinking one thing in a hand that could be high level, or maybe it's not, maybe it's fucked up. <laughs> um, but you know, maybe I'm thinking through a spot that's pretty high level, but I can distill it down to the points that are important and in a way that makes sense to most people, even people who don't have an extremely thorough background in studying the game uh, or, you know, understanding GTO or even, or even like are on a training site. And so I think that's why uh, vlogs that have hand analysis are kind of cool because you can, you can see like, first of all, a glimpse into that person's personality and their life, but also just into how they think about the game, which is probably going to be different than the next guy. Uh, And I think that's really the only reason that my channel exists because I, I do think that, you know, an Andrew Neamey or Brad Owen are, you know, light years ahead in many respects as far as their content. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, they're not Matt Vaughn. So <laughs> we're plugging, plugging your vlog and you just go ahead and plug Andrew <laughs> Neamey and Brad Owen. What is the, well, hey, can, but they, I, can but they dance too? You, you missed, you missed the cherry on top, which was, yeah, but they're not Matt Vaughn. <laughs> so. Nobody heard that. Yeah, well. Everybody was like, who's this Andrew Nimi? We're going to go look him up. Um, but no, you're right. Like speaking, speaking in a, a language that people understand is very beneficial, especially for people just entering the game. Um, a lot of times like the jargon, all of these things can be a little overwhelming. Before, before we sign off though, you just reminded me of one of my favorite negative comments of all time that I've ever received. Go for it. Um, because by the way, w- when you're on YouTube, you will get many negative comments. You have to find the positive in, in the negative. I, I have been told, and and by the way, this is not a unique comment. This is a comment I've received two, maybe three times from different people. I have a very punchable face. <laughs> so if you want to watch a guy with a very punchable face, you know, maybe you need to put a hole through that old monitor, justify getting a new one. Uh, feel free to check me out. All right, let's uh, let's end this. Um, <laughs> it, let's end this dancing dog show. Um, very, very happy to have you on. Thanks for having me. It was great. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Chasing Poker Greatness. If you haven't yet subscribed to the show, please take a moment to do so on Apple Podcasts or wherever your favorite place to listen to podcasts may be. And once again, I wanted to let you know about PKC Poker. If you're on the lookout for a new poker platform where the games are safe and secure and the action's amazing, head to EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod to get your code and jump into the games. You must have a code to play as well as be 21 years of age or older. One final time, that's EnhanceYourEdge.com slash PKCPod. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time on Chasing Poker Greatness.